Hi, I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable high-speed internet. Today, I'm joined by Matt Dunn, founder and executive director of the Center on Rural Innovation, a nonprofit action tank started in 2017 to close the rural opportunity gap. He and I talk about the impact the digital divide has had on the rural U.S. over the past 20 plus years, how the Center on Rural Innovation works with communities to help them build out broadband, among other things, why rural America does need fiber infrastructure, despite what some industry stakeholders would have you believe, and what state and federal policies are and are not working when it comes to helping rural communities get connected. Matt, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Delighted to be here. So to start off, can you just tell me a little bit about the Center on Rural Innovation and what you all do? Sure. Center on Rural Innovation is an action tank that was created in uh, 2017 to help solve for the greatest rural opportunity gap that we have seen in a century. Uh, after the Great Recession, uh, urban places actually came roaring back. Rural places, not so much. Uh, and by even January of 2020, before the pandemic, not even half of rural counties had gotten back to their pre-2008 economic levels. And we all know the pandemic you know, hit folks uh, across the board. Uh, urban places actually went back to their pre-2008 level. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't you know, it wasn't good, but it was, you know, just sort of going back to that level, rural places hit new lows. Uh, so there is some real urgency. The drivers for that, uh, interestingly, was uh, automation, globalization, and the decline of entrepreneurship in rural America. The jobs that were created after 2008 were really fueled by the fruits of automation, digital economy jobs with people doing coding and new companies coming and transforming marketplaces, it created millions and millions of jobs and it it removed millions and millions of jobs in the United States. The problem is it almost exclusively uh, created them in urban places and almost exclusively removed them in rural. So our focus is uh, being able to create a, a new equilibrium by bringing digital economy jobs to rural places. Uh, because right now, uh, rural America represents 15% of the nation's workforce, but only 5% of the digital economy jobs. Uh, so we, we think that to get to that equilibrium, you need to get 5% up to 15%. Uh, that doesn't mean that you know all digital economy jobs need to be in rural or that all rural jobs need to be digital economy jobs. It just needs to be a piece of that of each economy. And in the age of the internet, as long as you have good broadband, there should be no limit to where digital economy jobs and scalable tech entrepreneurship uh, can thrive. Right. Okay. So um, just to stick with what you guys do for a second, can you tell me a little bit about how many towns you work with, how you end up choosing them, and maybe just to make it live for me, who your counterparts are once you actually partner with those towns? Absolutely. So we are... Uh, currently working with 20 communities across all four time zones in 18 states. Uh, They vary dramatically, not only in geography, but also in uh, demographics. Uh, Several of them are uh, majority BIPOC, uh, which 
sometimes the the uh, generalizations about rural places is that they are not diverse when in fact that's not the case um but they also have come from different economic origins uh some that have been traditionally resort and have had to deal with the uh, income inequality and the lack of middle class in those cases some were extraction communities where coal is no longer viable uh some have had uh you know agricultural history so it's it's a really nice cross section the work that we do is focused on capacity building uh both in our broadband and our strategic work as communities are standing up digital economy ecosystems uh so we come in and help with doing you know clear assessments of where they are now we then do strategy planning alongside the local leadership uh not doing it all for them but actually working with them to make sure that we're leveraging their core assets, their leadership, the opportunities that are always in context and then we help them to secure the funding to get at least uh 3 years of runway towards achieving their goal. And then they become a part of our network and we give them ongoing support uh and if it's for a community that we worked with on the broadband front and is now ready to figure out how to create training programs for coders or how to set up a accelerator program for their entrepreneurs who want to create scalable tech companies we can then work with them along that continuum uh and we again we have 20 communities uh currently in the network uh that are between 5 and 50,000 uh in population uh and we have another uh 10 uh that we are kicking off work with uh this summer and fall Wow, that's really exciting. Um so let's stick with the the broadband building aspect of what you guys do or help other communities do. Um can you take tell me about one of those communities uh, um and maybe, you know, what they were building and and what that process looked like and I'm also just curious um do these communities always tend to work with fiber or are there other technologies in the mix? Um tell me more about that. So we've done work mostly on what I would call the pre-development side. So a community that understands that their broadband is not uh up to snuff uh that there is a huge barrier to the the core uh items of education uh, ability to work uh, remotely as well as uh, telehealth which is just taken off uh and we go through a process of helping communities understand where where they are currently what the kind of take rate would likely be uh if they were able to deploy broadband what the barriers and challenges perhaps regulatory or in terms of infrastructure uh would need to be overcome in order to be able to build a robust fiber to the home plan all the way through to helping design then a a a business plan with a capital uh need that they can then go and uh go to a, a formal engineering phase uh and secure funding to be able to actually go and deploy that. So it's a lot of uh work with the 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 local um uh, entities which just vary differently. Uh if a community is fortunate enough to have a municipal electric company or a cooperative electric company in their area and their state allows for those kinds of entities to deploy broadband it's a different conversation than if they are in a place where that's not the case they have a you know a national telephone company and maybe a cable company that's just put it 47th on their list of priorities 
in order to get someone who could possibly come in and overbuild or figure out some way to conjole that entity to be able to deliver uh, the broadband that they deserve. Uh, so it's it's highly variable. Um, it, we're also working with communities that have some uh, interesting legacy entities. Uh, you know, one that has a cooperative cable company. There weren't many of those, but in some places, including in Nevada, they set up cooperative cable companies uh, in order to try to have some community ownership over delivering content. And so the in that case, it's understanding that structure and the assets associated with it, the funding that is now increasingly available at the state and national level, and how that can be plugged together to most efficiently create future-proof broadband, which gets to your final question. So we, we've worked with communities that have tried all kinds of things. Uh, at the end of the day, we believe that fiber to the home is the thing that's going to allow for scalability over time. You know, the demand for broadband uh, speeds are increasing 20 to 30% per year. And if you're talking about a wireless solution uh, or, you know, some of the other things that are out there, you're really not going to uh, see the upload speeds um, that are going to keep up with that kind of demand. So if we're, we're thinking in the long term, uh, both in terms of the financial investment that's being made now, as well as the, uh, <laughs> the time and effort that goes into doing that kind of upgrade, uh, we really zero in on helping communities to build fiber to the home. Uh, and, and to be clear, they can. You know, there are 10 million rural Americans who currently have fiber to the home uh, from, you know, gritty organizations who have just gone and, and done it. Uh, so it's it's a doable thing. Uh, it just is is sometimes more complicated in places, and it does take that time planning and then resource allocation to make it a reality. If you listen to some stakeholders um, and not others, then you would take away that rural America only needs 25-3, uh, that you cannot build fiber in, in most of the most rural places in the U.S., and um, that municipally uh, run fiber networks are a disaster. So uh, can you confirm or deny uh, any of those points? <laughs> I, I am happy to deny, <laughs> deny, deny. Yes. It is it just... It, 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 it is baffling to me that that narrative has continued uh, to be out there in contrast to the really amazing examples, quite to the contrary. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing these projects that are doing uh, incredibly well. You know, Wilson, North Carolina, which is a member of our network, uh, was the first you know municipality to take its uh, electric company infrastructure the electric company infrastructure that they put together because the marketplace didn't bring electricity to them a hundred years ago. And they said, we should be able to do the electricity of our time. And they went and did it. Not only have they been successful, they're actually generating so much revenue. They're investing in their innovation hub to make sure that their entire community can benefit economically from having gigabit speed internet to every person throughout that uh, that that city. So it's a uh, it, it's a complete fallacy that a municipal projects don't work uh, and that uh, this can't happen in rural. It does take a public private partnership to say that it's going to happen in the pure marketplace 
No, of course not. And electricity wouldn't have gotten to most of Vermont either. Uh, but if you are uh, if you are committed to making sure that there is uh, an equal chance for rural people to be able to access uh, healthcare effectively, education, uh, and jobs of the future, you can make it happen. Uh, and it is uh, it is doable. And happy to talk about some of the policy things that do need to happen in order to make sure that that experience is universal. Yeah, uh, let's let's do that then. Um, obviously, right now, as we speak, Congress is still uh, trying to figure out an infrastructure package. Um, it seems like anywhere from 65 to $100 billion will end up getting funneled into broadband. Um, I suppose if it ends up staying a bipartisan package, it'll probably closer stay closer to the 65 number, but we'll see. Um, so what do you want to see come out of that ultimately? Look, the, the funding is uh, really, really important. Uh, and But the deployment of that funding and then the regulatory parameters that are around it uh, are equally important. Uh, we saw a lot of money being uh, deployed under a reverse auction this last year, under something called uh, RDOF. And it allowed for providers of broadband to basically say, we will take this much subsidy in order to deliver you know, broadband of this level. And the idea was to try to optimize the marketplace, right? To try to get uh, the, the best bang for the uh, tax dollar. And I appreciate why that is. But there was a, it, in it, it allowed for providers to bid on, on small pockets of population density and not commit to doing the other places. And so it, it actually created a lot of problems in the uh, actual deployment and planning of a comprehensive system to meet all rural needs. Because if you t if you go into a rural community and you say, yep, I'm going to deliver fiber and get all this subsidy to deliver fiber to the village center, and then you're not going to do anything to the farms, that divide will just become that much wider. Uh, the other problem with it is that it used the FCC maps, which are notoriously terrible. And, and the painful part is that it's not only that it undercounts where there is need for broadband infrastructure, which has been well documented. In some places, it says that there isn't broadband where there actually is. So people received money to build broadband that was already there, which just is it does damage to the entire public process, which is a problem. So the resources need to be allocated in a way that allows for full border-to-border -border deployment of broadband in communities, rather than this piece of allowing for different internet service providers to, to essentially cherry pick and then leave everything else to Starlink and you know wireless providers that may or may not deliver something that's useful in five years. Um, and, and it just, it needs to be done in that way. I think states do a, a pretty darn good job of deploying it with all of those pieces in mind, uh, rather than, you know, a, a Washington DC formula that, uh, you know, tries to, to push it out. Um, the other part though, is uh, some regulatory reform. Uh, there are some laws that do things like make it illegal for municipalities who have municipal electric companies to actually serve their constituents uh, in public-private partnerships. And I, I, I can't imagine anyone who believes in local control 
thinking that that's a good idea at any level. But if you're going to make this happen, please allow for the use of the same kinds of infrastructure and organization structures that got us electricity uh, 100 years ago. And also allow for those entities to go beyond their borders. Uh, you know, competition, it turns out, is good if you can have multiple entities that are providing fiber in a, in a variety of ways. Um, but again, you've got to be able to allow for cooperative electric companies, municipal electric companies, public-private partnerships uh, to be able to flourish. Uh, and then the other part of it is making sure that uh, the, the money that goes out is focused on fiber to the home. Because just open it up to, you know, any old organization that is trying that that is claiming to do point to point wireless, uh, and you know the the uh, some some point to point wireless, you know, works works pretty darn well. Uh, others uh, who have been receiving money haven't actually done it before, which I find amazing. Uh, and but all of it has you know <laughs> the challenges of physics. Uh, with being able to keep up. And the last thing we want is to spend all of this money at this moment in time when people see urgency around it and be back in five years with rural America uh, again at a uh, deficit uh, in terms of being able to participate in the economy. It's really important that we get this right, because it's not going to happen again that we have this momentum around broadband. And uh, maybe this is not the right comparison, but I've been thinking about the way we're responding to the digital divide a little bit in the way that we've responded momentarily to gun violence in this country. You know, there's a uh, <laughs> groundswell of uh, activity and now we're going to pass some laws finally to attend to this issue. And then, you know, gun violence kind of gets out of the, the mainstream news and then then we lose our, our appetite for passing laws around it. And I worry the same thing could happen around the digital divide as people start to return to quote unquote normal. Um, and this is not uh, directly in our line of sight. So it's really important that we get this, this right. Uh, right now. And from what I'm hearing from you is that these decisions really need to be left um, to the, the local communities as much as possible once the money comes down. Look, this is this is about, you know, deploying infrastructure. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you deploy infrastructure, whether it's water or sewer lines or uh, electrical grids or whatever else, you need to be taking into account the entire region. Uh, you need to be able to create the design uh, that can allow for resilience and interoperability, and you need to make sure that you're getting to the the last mile, mm -hmm. uh, because uh, you know we're we're all in this together, uh, and I think we can all agree that we want to make sure that people have, you know, the the opportunity for jobs in the future, uh, regardless of of where they live. Yeah. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you. I'm going to resist asking you a million more questions and let you get back to the important work you do. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me and uh, I hope you'll come back. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you again, Matt Dunn, for joining me. Thanks as well to our producer, Tian Fu, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.